Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Rastafarianism is a topic I have never discussed on the show, though I've meant to, for several years at this point. The story of Haile Selassie, Jamaica, Ethiopia, and Shashamani are deeply interesting. Like many, I found out about Rastafarianism through the music of Bob Marley and the Bad Brains as a teenager, but I never took it any deeper until years later when my students were interested in learning more about the topic. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Aaron McLeod to the show. Dr. McLeod is the author of Visions of Zion, Ethiopians and Rastafari in the Search for the Promised Land, released by NYU Press in 2014. In this episode, we discuss travels in Ethiopia, the history of the Rastafarian movement and how it is perceived by the Ethiopian people, and what has happened in the years since the book was released. You can find Dr. Aaron McLeod at aaronmcleod.ca. That's M-A-C-L-E-O-D. Please enjoy our conversation on Visions of Zion. Dr. Aaron McLeod, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to have you on the show. Uh, and I'm wondering if you can just spend a moment and introduce yourself to our listeners, however you see fit for just a moment. Well, um, I am a teacher, writer, researcher. I always sort of put et cetera on the end of that because mm-hmm. I, I no longer work directly in the world of academia, even though I was involved in academia for a long time, mm-hmm. by which I mean university level uh, academia. I teach at a college in Quebec um, in this system that we refer to as CEGEP, which is an educational college for general and professional purposes. Normally, when I speak to people outside of Quebec, I say it's kind of like um, a last couple of years of high school and community college combined together in in one building. Oh, cool. 
the focus is really on teaching and um, I teach uh, literature and composition. So really trying to um, encourage critical thinking as well as effective effective communication um, in English uh, amongst um, my students who are probably 18 to, to 21. And then I also have a business where I do consulting for um, NGOs, really strictly about uh, reporting to government funders, particularly the Canadian government. And then I also do some journalism. I've written for the New York Times, the Globe and Mail, uh, the Guardian in the UK, um, Rolling Stone on music primarily, but also on on culture uh, as well. So I do a bunch of different things, but one of those things that I tend not to do as much of anymore is academia. So um, <laughs> thank you for thank you for um, having me uh, on the show as kind of a ex academic. Um, and not a current uh, scholar, as it were. Love it. Well, I'm also somebody who jumped ship from higher education. I was in a PhD program for a couple of years, which I've talked about on the show before, and jumped ship right before comprehensive exams because I realized that that was not for me. Mm -hmm. And I was traveling down a path that I kind of had to take some hard looks and realize like, this isn't really for me. Do you have any like, you know, thoughts on like what it was that made you jump ship from that world? Well, I mean, normally I'm someone who is sometimes to my detriment, not a quitter, um, as my parents might have described it. So I kept going with the PhD um, to finish it. Like yeah. That was that was my that was my goal was to finish it, but really unsure as to what would what would come after that. I'm kind of a completist. I'm a completist with TV shows, books, as well as apparently my PhD program. So when I uh, when I left, um, when I completed the PhD, I did apply for many many uh, jobs, uh, but it became it became clear that. Um, it just was not was not in the was not in the cards. Mm -hmm. And after almost a decade of applying for jobs and having some interviews and that kind of that kind of thing, I had a final campus visit interview uh, in 2018. Um, and that was about nine and a half years uh, of trying. And I did not get that job. And so obviously I was, I was very upset and I made the decision to, uh, to, to take a step away. But during all of this time, I'm very lucky. I mean, I did still have the, the job with the SAGEP and I, and kind of trying to create other, other possibilities. And I still um, attended conferences, uh, you know, had wonderful conversations with lots of wonderful people and kept publishing uh, work, but um yeah, it just uh, being a professor at a research institution just didn't didn't pan out. Yeah, I, I love hearing stories like that because uh, the life path that people have taken within academia is is really interesting to me. It's always interesting to me to hear people people stories of people who have left, the stories of people who have stayed, the stories of people who have stayed and disliked it the whole time. Those are interesting mm -hmm. to me as well. Um, so you know, the reason you're here today is you put out a book. Uh, several years ago um, with NYU Press called Visions of Zion, Ethiopians and Rastafari in the Search for the Promised Land. 
And I'm really interested. I found this book through you and I connected through other ways, but uh, I'm really interested in your academic trajectory and a little bit of the story of how you came to be interested in the Rastafarian movement and Ethiopia in general. And I'd love to just kind of hear a little bit of your story there. Sure. I mean, I suppose, and I did tell this story when I did my thesis defense, actually, um, I come from a family of uh, Irish and Scottish migrants to North America. And I first um, got into Irish literature. I was a literature scholar and I got into Irish literature and I was, I was really interested in the, you know, the work of Irish writers who basically were trying to write themselves and their own culture into existence in the face of British colonialism, which led me to read all sorts of different um, so-called post-colonial um, literature in, in graduate school, because my master's degree was in was in literature, and then I moved into um, sort of more communications and cultural studies in my, in my PhD. And, uh, you know, whereas the Irish literature was personally um, inspirational to me when I got into other um, forms of literature that were writing against uh, sort of oppressive colonial structures and the legacy of uh, what is a heinous system that continues to this day, um, I just found book after book after book that I absolutely, absolutely adored. And then I had the opportunity with a Canadian organization called CUSO International, which the best way to refer to it is kind of like the Canadian version of the Peace Corps, mm, mm -hmm. um, although not quite so structured. Um, I had the opportunity to, to go and work at the University of the West Indies and to support a uh, communications initiative. Um, it was the Disaster Information Network sort of spreading um, information about disaster preparation and disaster response amongst countries within the, the Caribbean. And because I took a diploma in communications after my master's degree in literature, this is why I, uh, I applied for this program and then ended up in, in Kingston, Jamaica, working at the university and working at the library. And in the that job, I had access to the rare book section, mm. which uh, when I came back years later, um, almost a, a decade later as a postdoctoral fellow, I never had the same access again. So it was kind of wonderful. And I could go in and look at all of the rare books. And they have some amazing, amazing things at the University of the West Indies. You know, Derek Walcott's original manuscripts seated right next to um, these piles and piles of records of enslaved individuals. And so it really is quite um, stark, the, the types of material and the history that is held there. And um, that is where I came into contact with, uh, with books and information around Rastafari. And, you know, thinking about all of these different ways that, you know, cultures um, around the world have, have fought back against, uh, against colonialism, you know, Rastafari took the colonial religion and transformed it 
in um, the image of Rastafari, the mm. image of blackness, and that to me was tremendously powerful. And then to to learn that you know this also shifted identities, so that Rastafari identify as being Ethiopian, and then they repatriate to Ethiopia in a community about 250 kilometers um, south of of Addis Ababa. Seeing uh, seeing themselves as Rastafari as Ethiopian, and then the wondering myself, what is the reaction to that? And as someone who has lived most of their lives in Quebec and has witnessed, and um, I mean, I don't know when you are going to air this or how much information people have about recent um, happenings this year in Quebec, but with the passing of Bill 96 which is a new language law, which makes many, many demands on uh, people in Quebec with regards to French language, one of which is in the first six months of arrival, um, immigrants um, must learn French and after those six months have no access to uh, government documentation or any um, communication with the government in any language other than French. So, and this is, has been uh, in the works for some time. So the dynamics around that and the dynamics around how host communities engage with, um, with incoming populations and this whole sort of sense that is the responsibility of the incoming population to adapt to the, the host communities so-called values um, and culture all of this kind of came together to make me really interested in that dynamic between Rastafari and um, Ethiopia and and how that might uh, allow for an, a greater understanding of some of the of some of the tensions and negotiations um, with regards to uh, sort of anti-colonial thinking, um, so-called post-colonial thinking, uh, migration, transnational communities, uh, notions of, of of citizenship, notions of uh, identity. What does it mean to be um, a citizen of a space, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All of this stuff has been of interest to me just from my experience as a sort of settler Canadian um, with it, well, a Canadian with a settler background and thinking about how this functions um, in Canada and how there is very little recognition of the uh, the different sites around the world that reflect some of the the same issues it's always kind of well only look at the west what the west is cosmopolitan but anywhere else um is is not when in reality there's a great deal of of elements that are significantly instructive when you look um, in other spaces but colonialism has led us to uh really sort of feel that there is one space and that is this so-called Western world. Mm, I love this. Well, I'm, I'm excited to hear some travel stories as well too, but let's like kind of bring the book in here. Visions of Zion, Ethiopians and Rastafari and the search for the promised land from NYU. So eight years have passed since the release of this book, which I realize is kind of maybe an interesting revisiting or, you know, maybe, uh, you know, you're digging up some memories and things like that to talk about this book. And I'm wondering what you 
most remember about your time surrounding the research and release of this book and like where you were at the time and you know just some some thoughts on the context of you know you in Ethiopia learning these things for yourself tell me about the take me back in time a little bit well i first went to ethiopia after returning from uh jamaica in um 2003 mm-hmm. if my dates if my dates are slightly incorrect i, I apologize it's, it's okay ago. so um i came back from from jamaica in 2003 and uh, then i had the opportunity to work with um habitat for humanity and habitat for humanity has this program called the global village program now a lot of people um, assume that the global village program you you sort of it's a bunch of white people that go over to another country build something and leave um, when in reality it's a very small I think it's less than ten percent of of their their work and um, local Habitat for Humanity offices around around the world and also in different parts of um, of Canada North America etc they will ask for fundraising reasons to support a group of of people to come over and work um, engage in what Habitat for Humanity refers to as sweat equity um, in solidarity with a community in another part of the country or another part of another part of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and also kind of uh, supporting uh, local tourism, local businesses in, in, in doing in doing that. So um, I was involved in leading uh, um, a group to Ethiopia. That was the country that um, there was the 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 most requests um, from local Habitat for Humanity volunteer-led offices um, in in Ethiopia. And so I um, led a group of of American um, folks, uh, a team, and we went over for two weeks um, and mostly observed, tried, you know, assisted in kind of what I would refer to as sort of very basic, unskilled uh, manual labor, mm-hmm. learned about, learned about their program, uh, programming and, um, and had a amazing, amazing time. And that is when I decided that, Hey, you know, I would, I would really be interested in learning more about, uh, about Ethiopia. I mean, Ethiopia is a, is a remarkable place. Um, and it's for, for all sorts of historical, cultural, geographic, um, food um, reasons. And, um, I, figured out that, uh, I could return to um to Ethiopia if I um if I if I kept working with with Habitat um and uh so I because I oh I initially was a team member and then I trained to be a team leader um to be involved in this in in this program and then that led me to think well maybe I should apply to go back to school to look into this because the the first time I was there I um, spent an extra couple of weeks in the country. And because of my experience in Jamaica, I then went to this town called Shashamani, which is where there is a Rastafari settlement um, due to land that was provided to, uh, well, Haile Selassie stated it was for the black people of the world. 
that he he bequeathed um, uh, as a thank you for the support that had been received from the wider Pan-African community during the Italian occupation. Mm. And um, so this this piece of land, uh, not very many people initially um, took him up on the offer and a work that is really key for understanding um, the, the land grant and the history of the land grant um, is uh, Julia Bonacci's Exodus. She's uh, an Italian French scholar who uh, historian who has tracked the development of this of this space since the since the land grant itself, how it's changed over time and over the changes in Ethiopia's in Ethiopia's history. So um, that those experiences with the uh, with habitat really kind of led me to um, apply to do a, a PhD part time while I was still working full time. That's the other thing about mm-hmm. me is I did I I was never fully dedicated to the PhD. I was always working as yeah. well as do it as well as doing the the PhD. So um, I would have to do it kind of piecemeal. It took me a little while. It took me about six years to fi- to finish it, but. Uh, um, it was really through those initial kind of experiences in Jamaica, experience in in Ethiopia that sort of led to um, a, an application to do a PhD program. Um, I'm someone I applied to one uh, program. I applied to to McGill in Montreal, and um, that's how I kind of started in on on the work. And um, eventually, after after six years and thirteen um, trips back and forth to Ethiopia, most of them via Habitat, then a couple as a result of um, a, a research grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, um, I interviewed um, over a hundred people, talked about um their view on Rastafari mm-hmm. so I was I was really looking at you know the the Ethiopian perception of the the Rastafari community yeah. in, in Ethiopia and this was in this town of Shashamani where there is this remains this uh, this settlement as well as kind of more broadly in terms of an analysis of the media you know how is Rastafari treated in uh, in the media in in Ethiopia and so speaking to various uh, journalists as well as scholars Ethiopian scholars who had studied Rastafari, and um, <clears throat> and and all of this kind of uh, this kind of question. Um, I'm sorry. I mean, I'm kind of talking around this a little bit, but um, it was really like the the kind of I guess the catalyst for all of the research to happen was um, I was sitting with um, a dear friend one of my closest friends in this whole world. His name is um, Heroy Arif Aine. He's an amazing person, um, lives in Addis Ababa, uh, used to um, organize the Ethiopian Music Festival. Fantastic human being. And I asked him, as I was kind of thinking about all of this stuff before I'd applied to do a PhD, I said, hey, you know, uh, this is really interesting, like Rastafari coming to Ethiopia, identifying as Ethiopian, living in Shashamani from, and, and Rastafari coming from all sorts of different places around the world. I mean, what do Ethiopians think about this? Mm-hmm. And he, he turned and said to me, he's like, well, nobody ever asks us. And I thought, well, that's, 
That's my PhD project. I'm just yeah. going to ask. I am neither Rastafari nor am I Ethiopian. I'm interested in the, the that kind of inter like intercultural communicative moment, I guess you could say, of, of, of two cultures coming together, having grown up in a space um, with, uh, you know, the, the so-called two solitudes of, of French and English and observing all of the, the language tensions and, and how that, that functioned and having no real understanding of how to um, uh, negotiate that effectively in, in, in many situations that this kind of offered an opportunity to say, okay, well, in what, what, what is happening in this site where you have um, different cultures uh, coming together, sharing the same space, identifying, both identifying as being Ethiopian, much like um, uh, uh, in, in Canada, we, we, you know, whether you speak French or you speak and speak English or any other language, there is this identity of Canadian. And, and so um, kind of being interested in how these how these notions and nations and um, identities function. Yeah, the story like that you put in the introduction of the book about sitting on the bus and there's uh, being near Shashamani. And having a realization and a conversation with a woman where she saw you as much Ethiopian as she saw these uh, people who were going to Shashamani and are Rastafarian. Okay. And there's like this, uh, I found that the, the um, identity of Ethiopianness and Rastafari as really interesting. And, you know, does that make sense? I, am I kind of on the right track here? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, I think that, you know, I mean, the concept of Ethiopia and Ethiopianness is highly fraught. And, and I wrote this book, uh, you know, m- most of the research occurred between 2004 and uh, 2012, mm-hmm. let's say. So that, that period, we're now, you know, a decade out of that, we've had numerous changes in 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 governments in Ethiopia. Uh, presently, there is what can only be referred to as a as, as civil war um, in in Ethiopia, um, and you have seriously competing narratives about what is. Is, is happening in Ethiopia. And I, and, um, you know, I won't go too much into that. I'll, I'll, I'll stick to my own uh, expertise of the, of the period when sure. I was, was in Ethiopia, but this idea of the, the competing narratives of what it means to be Ethiopian and it, it, from the Ethiopian perspective, and this feeds into the, the reality that we see today, there are, there's a multiplicity and, you know, not only are there, I mean, there's the famous 84 different ethnic groups speaking as many languages in, in Ethiopia and probably more than that number, um, depending on how you wish to wish to count um, ethnicities and, and languages and dialects, etc. cetera. Um, and then you have the Rastafari who really have a, comprehensive, cohesive understanding of what Ethiopia means to Rastafari. Mm -hmm. And that stems from an understanding of an Ethiopia 
that is in the past, you know, and in the book, I talk about the different, different maps, you know, I could have a, a map of a certain space and you could have a map of the certain space and they could look completely different because they're informed by different, uh, different cultural, historical, socioeconomic, um, racial, ethnic, religious realities. So we are in the same space, but we're seeing it in completely different ways. And this mm-hmm. is the situation with Rastafari and uh, and Ethiopia. And so this idea of Ethiopianness, this idea of what it means to be Ethiopian for Rastafari is very different than what is faced in the reality of Ethiopia, because they're relying on kind of maps and understandings and quite literally maps, because we're talking about a land grant, right? Maps and understandings under a emperor who is no longer um, in in power um, in, uh, in Ethiopia. And so that really uh, causes some issues. And then you have to look at um, the space that is Shashamani, which is a incredibly multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religious um, space with significant, uh, significant tensions of its own. One of which, as someone who spent most of their lives in Quebec, uh, is very familiar to me to see the language um, issues where, you know, Amharic, and Afanaromo, so Amarinya and Omorinya um, are kind of uh, uh, in co- in conflict. You would see signs that had been in um, Amharic uh, painted over mm. with um, Afanaromo um, writing. So the 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 different alphabets and learning obviously about how under um, Haile Selassie there was a deep sense of Amharization of the country and having a lingua franca and and, and um, putting that in place and enforcing that in in the school. Also very familiar to someone mm-hmm. who is from who is from Quebec and and the constitutional history of uh, Ethiopia, where there is a written into the constitution is the ability to for different um, areas of the country to to separate different regions to separate again. It it it's uh, it has a resonance when you're you're thinking about um, these kinds of uh, these kinds of issues here in Canada. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on a whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Amazing. Well, let's dive into a little bit about Rastafari because I've never talked about Rastafari on this show before. And I'm really curious about this concept of Zion within Ethiopia and like any major things about Rastafari that listeners of this show who don't know much about the beliefs of Rastafari, what do you think are some like basics that people should definitely know? I think the basic thing is to know that Rastafari is a movement that was not developed within the space that is Ethiopia. 
um, Rastafari came to be. It was a bit of a perfect storm uh, of the early part of the of the 20th century, whereby you have um, colonialism uh, that's kind of fighting to maintain a, a stranglehold, especially British colonialism in the English-speaking Caribbean, there are different, um, different movements, different leaders who are speaking out against um, British colonialism, like um, from a uh, religious perspective, Alexander Bedward. Um, you also have obviously Marcus Garvey, um, Leonard Howell. Um, uh, you have a range of different um, individuals who are speaking out against um, the the oppressive nature of of British colonialism in in Jamaica. And this is also coming at a time when Haile Selassie comes to power in, in Ethiopia. You know, so these different, uh, again, these narratives then end up being in communication with each other. And because, you know, Jamaica is a, a religious space um, informed by uh, Christianity, reading the the bible in the face of these different forces led to an interpretation that uh Haile Selassie represented you know as a, there is a king who will rise in the east and it will herald a new day for for Africa um this idea that the as Alexander Bedward said, you know, there is a black wall and the white wall and, you know, the white wall is trying to take over the black wall, but the black wall will, you know, will rise. Marcus, you know, the, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. You have these, these different, uh, this discourse that's, that's happening and these events that are happening. And Highland Selassie presented in the face of British colonialism, which presents its own monarch, an option and a political option, a monarchical option, a spiritual option, being the king of kings, the lord of lords, the conquering line of the tribe of Judah, you know, this all came together to, to support a, a movement um, in Jamaica that then uh, found a voice um, amongst people um, who were struggling to to survive, find work in the city of, uh, of Kingston, Jamaica um, at that time, we're talking in the, in the 1930s, and then continuing on to support uh, the independence movement in, in Jamaica, leading to um, independence in, in 1962, mm -hmm. which is, what are we looking at, 60 years ago, um, come this August. Yeah. So... It, you know, Rastafari was a tremendously important um, and remains a tremendously important um, movement um, in, in Jamaica and the rest of the world. And then obviously through the mechanism of reggae and fundamentally the voice of, of, of Bob Marley, basically um, extending to every corner of, of the earth. Although oftentimes without um, a particularly full understanding of, of some of the tenets of the movement, which I think you're asking about, which would be, for instance, repatriation yeah. as one, uh, reparations as, a, as another, um, 
the the idea of the of of dreadlocks and of ganja as sacrament that varies um, between different uh, different groups of Rastafari. There are different mansions of Rastafari. Uh, I won't go into all of them, but there there are a number, and they do have have significant differences in terms of leadership, in terms of uh, certain types of of beliefs. But uh, black man redemption is another is another main tenet of uh, of Rastafari, and. Um, and I would say anti, it's definitely an anti-colonial movement um, uh, as well. But again, um, the, I had the, the, the privilege and opportunity to be involved in uh, uh, guest editing an issue of Ideas, which is a journal out of the uh, um, University of the West Indies and uh, an Arawak Press. Um, and it was really kind of looking at shifts in the movement over time. So it does change and it is a movement that is quite flexible. Um, and uh, in some ways um, controversial because of the relatively recent um, inclusion of whites and other um, uh, non-black peoples. And so the, the, their sort of questions have been raised about um, how Rastafari can uh, maintain some of the tenets, um, like a focus on um, fighting anti-Blackness and supporting um, Black redemption and uh, repatriation and reparations when um, white folks are involved. Well, I know that you've also recently revisited some of the things within the conclusion of the book. So the conclusion is called The Future of Ethiopians and Rastafari in the Promised Land. And like I mentioned earlier, eight years have passed since the book was released. And I want to know about this revisiting that you've done and if there are any updates to what you foresaw as the future that you describe in the conclusion. Tell me about revisiting this and what you've done recently. Um, what I what I did uh, uh, recently, because when the book ended um, at the time, um, there had uh, Melit Zanawi, the former leader of um, Ethiopia, had uh, had passed away quite suddenly, and there had been Rastafari that I had been in contact with who uh, stated that um, they had been in contact with the government at that time to uh, discuss um, ways and means of integration into Ethiopia uh, from a sort of a political and legal perspective. Most of my, during the time of my research, however, um, Rastafari were not um, citizens, but the Rastafari living in Shashamani um, were living uh, under, um, let's say, what is the term um, for it? It's, it was not regularized. It was, sure. it was a very kind of informal um, situation. Uh, many people having visas that had long um, been um, uh, invalidated, I guess you'd say, mm -hmm. uh, to the extent that should someone wish to leave, 
it would be cost prohibitive to try to pay any of the penalties for overstaying your visa, et cetera. There were very few people who had been able to achieve some level of residence permit. Um, this had issues in terms of uh, land ownership because only um, nations, nationalities, and peoples of Ethiopia are able to um, own land. There are a lot of um, of technicalities uh, around the status of uh, of Rastafari at that time. Yeah. And therefore, and but and therefore it was difficult. Um, and there was I kind of talked about uh, notions of cultural citizenship and trying to engage culturally with the wider community in the face of a lack of of legally defined um, citizenship rights. And you know, in Ethiopia, you can only hold one passport. You can't have multiple multiple passports. And so, you know, um, but that was is not accessible to people who are not. Ethiopian, you know, so uh, technically under the law, regardless of how much one might see themselves and de- self-define themselves as, 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 as Ethiopian. Now, um, in 2017, however, uh, there was an opening uh, in terms of residence permits mm. um, being, being allowed for uh, Rastafari. And this I, I kind of, when I was writing the book, in addition to this sort of cultural citizenship, I was also looking at how Rastafari was strategizing um, as a, a means of kind of entering into a definition under um, Ethiopian law, for instance, identifying as a specific ethnic group. Mm-hmm. And this has happened in other um, uh, in other parts of Ethiopian society where um, specific ethnic groups have, have applied to be defined as such under the Ethiopian constitution. And this was something that was spoken to me by some, some Rastafari as um, a way of, uh, of engaging with the Ethiopian state. Um, however, that particular one, it doesn't really work when you have a bunch of white people, or you know, or a, a just generally non-black people. Um, as the the mayor of Shashamani sort of said to me, like you know, these people that that look like because I'm I'm white person, you know, he said these people that look like you, like isn't your homeland Europe? Like why are why would you? Would you come here? You know, and and the Rastafari speak about uh, about colonialism. Why bring the colonial masters with you? To mm. you know, like that was one of the things that the 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 mayor of Sheshamani at the time uh, said to me. So um, these are the, like there were these strategies to to gain um, some level of of acceptance and integration, but then in 2017. Their, the residency was uh, put into put into play. However, um, even though, and I'm just sort of I'm just reading from my most recent essay, uh, Rastafari repatriates alongside foreign contributors to the development of Ethiopia and Ethio-Israelis, they were afforded residency in the country. Identification cards would provide legal legitimacy for Rastafari repatriates, but it was clear that this would not mean that Rastafari would be considered Ethiopian citizens. Thousands of people will be issued the new identity cards, but they still cannot take part in elections or engage in the country's security and defense sectors. So this is a significant development, but if the goal is 
citizenship, if the goal is full acceptance, it's it's still it still remains um, uh, necessary to to engage with the the narrative of of Ethiopianness in order to to have that sense of uh, of, of integration within the society. Amazing. Well, that's one of my favorite things about asking people with books that have, you know, a couple years have passed since they came out. Like, what is worth revisiting about your own work? And I'm really delighted that you have, you know, continued to uh to, to think about this stuff and to follow the the history and the story. Like, how much do you continue to read about these issues and study them, even though you're kind of removed from the world of higher education at this point? Are you still pretty in, pretty engaged in this? I think that what um, I gained from from doing from doing this work uh, was a kind of sense of the different dynamics around um, nation, nationality, citizenship, and and identity, which I think are essential um, to what I do as a, a teacher, even of of sort of literature, communication, critical thinking, etc. In a space where um, notions of belonging are consistently fraught, and so. I have continued to read around this because in addition to the tremendous amount of of learning from the experience of Ethiopians and Rastafari, especially within the space of of Shashamani, um, it has given me insight into the space of of Montreal, for instance, Mm. and a lot of the theoretical... um, uh, ideas that stemmed from the conversations that I was lucky enough to have with with people in Shashmani and in Ethiopia in general, and then through my postdoc in Kingston, Jamaica, um, that uh, it it has led to you know significant significant thinking around the the way that um, the Quebec government is presently, um, engaging in what can only be referred to as populist divisive tactics to um, make certain people feel less um, a part of uh, of the society in which I live. Well, Dr. Aaron McLeod, I have absolutely loved revisiting your book with you. Um, Visions of Zion, Ethiopians, and Rastafari in the Search for the Promised Land from NYU Press. Do you have any places where listeners out there who might be interested in following your work, where they might be able to, to do so, to find you, to follow you, etc.? Well, you can follow me on um, on Twitter. Um, I'm Touch of All Right, which uh, people ask me what that is. It's, it's something that my grandmother, my Irish grandmother used to say, which was, well, that's a little touch of all right. And so I, there was already, there's already a couple Aaron McLeods out there. So um, I'm touch of all right, T-O-U-C-H-O-F-A-L-L-R-I-G-H-T. Um, I have my website, which is um, Aaron McLeod, and that's E-R-I-N-M-A-C-L-E-O-D dot C-A. Um, and uh, I'm working on some some new some new projects uh, some new writing writing projects um, and uh, playing around with kind of these notions of um, of identity and narrative one of which has to do with 
um, following the the narrative of my grandfather who was killed in uh, on January 14th, 1945 um, as a bomber pilot. So um, over over Germany. So looking at all of the dynamics around bomber command, as well as who he was, how I learned about him, how his life um, completely uh, changed the trajectory of my father's life and, and expanding that to sort of these ideas of, of how does one um, think of themselves as as Canadian, and what does this mean um, in the context of the the kind of complicated, difficult, and very problematic um, narratives around uh, Canada at war? So that's another project that I'm that I'm working on uh, right now. I love it. Well, Dr. Aaron McLeod, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I am always happy to talk about uh, Ethiopia to anybody, really. <laughs>